Good morning. This morning we're in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 26. Philippians 1, 21 through 26. If you could please turn with me. For to, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is far necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. For because of my coming to you again, this is the reading of the Lord. is that Christ would be, there we go, I knew it was going to come on at one point, whether he lives or he dies, Christ would be honored in his body, right, like whether by life or by death, I want Christ to be honored, what he says. So then we come to chapter 21, or excuse me, verse 21, and he begins explaining, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He'll spend the next, the, the first part of the next section uh, dealing with his possible death, and then he'll spend longer on dealing with what it looks like to be living for Christ, or for him in the phrase, for to me to live is Christ. So I want to work through those two thoughts this morning. I think the Apostle Paul gives for us, what I would suggest for, for you and for me is, is an example or, or a template for how to live well. I know when I was probably somewhere around the age of 15 to 23, I really, really wanted to know God's will for my life, particularly in regard to who I would marry. I don't know if any of you have ever struggled with that type of idea. You just want to know. You don't want to mess around with dating. You don't want to be like wondering, is this the one all the time? You just wish like... You know, in this, this field of people you meet, that there would be like this flag above this person that you're supposed to marry and just not mess around with anything else. Anyone else ever feel like that? You just wish you knew. On a regular basis with our, our high school, late high school, college age, and, and into the early 20s, a common question that we'll have as pastors is basically that type of thing, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, where should, where should I go to college? What does this look like? Uh, who should I marry? How do I decide when I, when I move away from Bakersfield because I am not going to live here the rest of my life? Where do I go to church? These types of questions about what and how, they're, they're wisdom types of questions. And I, I think a lot of times what really is being asked is something God doesn't tell us in his word. There is no verse that tells me the name of the girl I should marry. And if anyone tries to like decode the Bible to give that type of answer to you, run. It's not there. On the other hand, perhaps like a huge road with multiple lanes, God tells us to get on the right highway. And living on that highway is a set of wisdom principles and trust in God's word but, but the, the particular lane we're in, the particular speed we're going is an application of principles God gives us, and it's pleasing to him when we do it well. And we see people around us that do it poorly. 
last uh, Friday night, my wife and I were driving home from dinner. And a person in front of us was driving erratically. My wife said, I think they might be drunk. My response was, I bet they're on their cell phone. Needless to say that when we got up to them, we changed lanes and quickly passed them because we did not want to be next to that person. I watched my rearview mirror. They seemed to stabilize after I passed them, so I'm pretty confident that I was right. <laughs> Those things are important. So in the, in the tally system, I won. I really don't know, but... I think when we look at Scripture, what Paul is giving for the Philippians is a template for how to deal with, with living right, being in the right place on that highway. And it, their situation is particularly different. They're in a different lane than him. Their, 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 their speed might need to be different than him, but generally speaking, this is the answer for all of God's people for all of the ages since Christ died and until he comes again, is this is how we should live. And in fact, I think Paul gives us Three of the answers to life's most vital questions. If you've ever seen these listed anywhere, there's four or five questions. Things like, where am I from? Who am I? Where am I going? What am I supposed to do on that path to there, wherever there is? And how should I live? Paul answers these three questions at the least in this text. Why am I here? How should I live? And where am I going? These are not debatable questions for the apostle, and they shouldn't be for us. A lot of times the simple questions of, you know, should I marry this guy? Should I go to this college? Should I attend this church? How should I do this or that? What should I do about this job that's been offered to me? They're answered actually in getting in the right highway, going the right speed. In other words, we answer the big, broad questions, and a lot of times those more particular questions are answered if we're doing right in the major questions that Paul answers for us in this text. After all, if Paul can suggest that his gifts, being an apostle, and location in jail, would also apply to the Philippians, who are not in Italy, but in fact in Macedonia, and they're not in jail, and none of them are an apostle, but in, in fact, he's giving his life patterns as something they should follow, then we should recognize that God is also using the Apostle Paul to speak to us about how we should live. So here's the basic template. We should embrace the attitude of the Apostle. We should embrace the attitude of the New Testament that says this, to live is Christ, to die is better. That's what the text says. So let's deal with the first thought. Why is dying so good? Because this thought that every believer should hold with absolute confidence, the sweetness of heaven, is being united with Christ. Well, he says it in verse 21, to die is gain. Unless you think this is just some apostolic super-Christian thing, he makes it very clear what he means by this. Look down into the next verse, in verse uh, excuse me, the, the following verse, verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. That is to live or to die. Dying and living, he is sitting there going, they're both good. This is, I'm just going to be honest. This is not the way I think about my life. Yesterday, I wasn't sitting there drinking my coffee Saturday morning going, you know, death would be really good. I don't think like that. Do you think like that? Well, because he's not thinking about it as death. Look at how he thinks about it. Verse 23. For, for to me to live is Christ. Verse 21. Here's why. Dying is gain. Then in verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. Why? Because I'll be with Christ. And he goes, that is far better. Better than living. Being with Christ is better. I have made a few people angry in my time. I always get a kick out of what makes certain people angry. So <clears throat> I'm going to jeopardize all your peace and tranquility right now by telling you this. Your pets will not be in heaven. I don't say that to be mean or to stir you up. I say this because the reason that might kind of disturb you. I mean, some of you really do. You want your dog to be in heaven. And the fact that I just said that, you are... You're still, you're still twirling that around, being like, he's not right, is he? Because you really, really love your dog. 
You care deeply about your cat that couldn't care less about you. <laughs> you care and love these creatures. They're not even people. And you really look at the idea of heaven without your dog that you've known for 12 and a half years. And it truly makes you sad. Now, we recognize it's just a dog. And some of you are offended that I'm using the word just in front of dog. It's just a dog. It's just a pet. When we consider the richness of heaven, you'll hear this oftentimes when someone passes away, that we are so eager to get to heaven because we will get to see loved ones. Right? I can't wait to get to heaven. I mean, this is really true of me more and more with my mom. My mom is still alive, but she's gone. Her, her, her thinking, her personality, it's all gone. She's just a body alive in a bed. That's all she is right now. And I was just thinking, she's never seen Zion. Right? Like, don't give me that, Ruben. I'm going to start crying. Like, like, she's never seen my child. Of course, it brought some other thoughts that, man, I really want my child to be saved. But wouldn't that be sweet that my mom in heaven will be united with loved ones who also know the Savior. And that, that stirs our hearts and makes us long to get there. How much more the thought of Christ? Like our Savior, who we've never seen him face to face, but no one has loved you like him. No one listens to you like him. No one knows your thoughts, your concerns, your weakness like him. No one knows what it's like to struggle like you struggle, to live in a way that pleases him like him. And he is the center of our hope. He's the center of our purpose. He should be the person we speak to the most as we talk to the Father in heaven through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of the apostles' compass of life. As he lives, his thoughts are of pleasing Christ. As he prays, he pleads for Christ to be glorified. As he loves, he loves with the love and the affections of Christ. And so the thought of heaven is like everything else is eclipsed. But you can imagine the apostle by this stage of the life has lost dear ones to the persecution of Christians. At this point, James has passed away. Peter has probably been crucified with his wife. He has watched loved ones pass. He doesn't mention them in this text. He wants to see Jesus. To be with Christ. If we were to take all of the good of this world and condense it and distill it so that everything that is truly good and wholesome but also enjoyable and pleasant were given to you, and on the other side, there is Jesus, and you have to pick one, Paul would say, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. It would be better to be in the presence of Jesus than to have all of the good of all of the world, of all of the ages distilled into your life with no misery or sorrow. It would be better to have Jesus. It would be better to have Jesus than all of your friends and all of your family ever. It would be better to have Jesus. When you get to heaven, the, the, the thought maybe of not having a family member there because they do not know Jesus as Savior strikes sorrow into your heart today. But the joy and the satisfaction of Christ and the goodness of him and his justice in, in hell and his holiness in heaven and the presence of his fellowship will be so sweet. You will not be sad that someone else is not there. The Bible says there will be no sorrow in heaven. And Paul is looking forward to the prospect, and he just knows this. Heaven is so good, it's better than anything in this world. It's better than anything. You pile it up, it doesn't matter. Heaven is better. Not because heaven is better, but because Jesus is there. And perhaps there's a little bit of idolatry in all of us, and that's why we want our dog Fido there, and that's why we want our family and friends there, because those are things we love, 
And they might actually indicate that we love Christ a little too little. And so if heaven does not hold the joy for you that it does for the apostle, you do not stir this up just by trying harder. You stir this up by pursuing Christ in this life. You stir this up by spending time with him in prayer. You stir this up by reading in the scripture about who our Savior is. In fact, when Paul talks about the preaching of the gospel message, he describes it as preaching Christ. He says, I preach Christ. And all I want you to know is Christ and him crucified. This is the essence of my preaching. He's doing this because he is trying to call sinners to love and know and trust in Christ. That's the gospel message. The gospel message is not, here's how you can avoid God's punishment. The gospel message is, come to Christ. We have depersonalized this thing. We've made it a set of truth to claim. It's not, it's a person. He is salvation. He is Savior. He is Redeemer. You come to Christ. You don't get to heaven. You get to be with Jesus. We want to make sure we get on the right side of that thought. And you, you know who Jesus is and you come to him based on the revelation of the scripture and trust that it is true as it reveals to us the person of Jesus Christ. For anyone who does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, but merely believes in a set of truth, I plead with you today, come to Jesus. Trust in him. Devote yourself to him. Love him with your whole being. And when you sin and struggle, as we all do, speak to him. Talk to the Lord. Plead for his forgiveness and restore relationship and fellowship with him. And see your sin is against a person. If I were to actually have a tally score and rub it in my wife's face every time I won an argument, I'd be up to like three points, but if I were, I would also be doing damage to a personal relationship and fellowship. I would not have a better marriage for that. It'd be worse on so many different levels. One of them would be her rubbing my face in my losses. It'd also just drive her away. I think often we fail to see sin as a personal hostility, an infraction against the person of the Lord. And that's how sin is always to be defined. It is an act of hostility and betrayal against the person of Jesus. And so when Paul considers heaven, he can simply say this thought in verse 23, that to depart from this earth is to be present with Christ, and that is better. Period. Could you say that? I think that requires a couple things that just it's worth mentioning. Absolute bedrock certainty that God saves us to heaven where Christ dwells. An absolute certainty that Christ is actually valuable and precious and good and sweet for those of us who get him. An exaltation of Christ that, that desires his joy and his presence more than anything in this life. These are the expressions that Paul is hinting at in the thought that for him to live as Christ but to die is actually gain. It's better. And Paul does not stop there. His actual stronger meditation is on what it means for him to live. If heaven is so good and Jesus' presence so sweet, what could possibly sidetrack the apostle and cause him to be content in staying in prison, being persecuted, having to live a miserable life in many ways in terms of creaturely comforts? walking through the persecution of a hostile world. What would cause the Apostle Paul to say, give me that? If heaven is better, why would he say, give me that? I want you to look down at verse 22. He starts out by saying, and I, what I intend to do is walk through kind of the logic of the text and then really emphasize what it means for me to live is Christ. Okay, so that's organizationally kind of what I'm doing this morning. He says, for if I'm to live in the flesh, this means fruitful, Labor. Before I go any further, what does it mean to live in this body for the Apostle Paul? It means hard work that yields something productive. Very rarely is Christian ministry, a service within the church, something that's not work. 
Right? If, if it's not work, you're probably not doing anything. Doesn't mean you don't enjoy it. Good work is oftentimes fun. But, but the Christian ministry is one in which we minister to others, and it's labor. It, it's hard work for our music team to get ready for Sunday morning. It's hard work for the cleaning crew to come in after you and make this place nice again. It's hard work for some of you who teach Sunday school and work with our kids to prepare and be ready so that you're not just pulling something out of your pocket and hoping it works. It's work to talk to your neighbors about Christ in such a way that you actually do a good job because you've prepped it in prayer and thoughtfulness. You've listened to them and talked to them in such a way you've expressed to them deep care, and then you call them to follow Christ. That's work. It's expensive. It's time. It's energy. It's thoughtfulness. He says it's, it's a fruitful work, though. It's fruitful labor. Come down to verse 24. After saying going to heaven and being with Christ is better, he says, but to remain in this flesh and this body is more necessary on account of you Philippians. Because I am convinced, the apostle says, I know I will remain and continue with you all, purpose statement here, for your progress and joy in the faith. Okay, so, so as we're breaking this down, labor, leads to their progress, their progress in what? Particularly the faith, and I would say it this way, their progress in their walk with Christ, their faith in Christ, that produces joy. Don't miss that connection, because he's talking to a suffering church, and he's writing as a suffering Christian in jail who could die in this, and he says, as you grow in maturity, as you develop in your faith, you also develop in your Joy, the consequence of maturing faith, is a stronger joy. It's not circumstantial. It's, it's built on faith. So I'm going to labor hard, fruitful labor, on your account so that you have a progress in faith and joy. And it leads to verse 26, where ultimately Christ is glorified. And the phrasing is actually really fascinating. The ESV kind of obscures it for us. But it's something like this. It is that they will have glory or boasting in Christ, in Paul. There's two in words there. You know, so, so he is saying your confidence, your boasting, your exaltation will be in Christ, in me. And his point is, is to circle back and saying that through the work of the apostle. As he speaks to them and preaches them and calls them and urges them and, and ministers to them, he's doing as an agent of Christ. And in many ways, as an agent of Christ then, their faith and their confidence in Christ is through his surrogate, his, his, his spokesperson, the apostle. I could maybe just bring it down like to, to our age and thinking through that last phrase. Oftentimes, as I explain the scriptures to people, I can sense that there's a double confidence. There's a confidence that, that God is saving people through Christ, but there's also a trust that I am telling them actually what God's word says. And while their saving faith is not, hopefully, at all in any agent, because that wouldn't be saving faith, there's a recognition that when someone accurately shares the word of God, that, that their confidence of the person who responds to God's word is also in the agent God uses. Inasmuch as, hopefully, years of ministry in this pulpit have given you a confidence that what I'm speaking is actually what God is saying. And your faith is in God as he uses me as his agent to carefully and accurately divide the word of truth. So God uses conduits, means, and, and instruments, his people, to share his message so that their confidence is in God's message, but the messenger is valuable too. Now Paul is not trying to say, look, you guys are glorying me. His point is, is that as his agent, going back to verse 21, for me to live is Christ. He's living embodying and speaking Christ to these people. So when they see Paul suffering, who do they see? There's a reflection of Christ in him. 
as they see Paul suffering. Who also suffered and who is Paul following? Christ. So they see him suffering for the cause of Christ's glory. They see the picture of Christ whose patient suffering leads to his ultimate glorification. And this is in fact what Paul says, that, that he is trying to follow Christ. And he says, so imitate me. Now again, I, I don't think the point of this passage is Paul is getting glory. But I want to make sure that we understand the text. The text suggests to us that Christ is the ultimate object of glory and confidence and boasting. That Paul is an instrument through whom they get that confidence on Christ. Having said that, let me, let me just review where the argument of the text goes. My fruitful labor, for your sake, has led to the progress of your faith and joy so that Christ is your confidence and boast and joy and glory. That's kind of that word group that has that, I think the ESV says glory. Some of the translations might say boast. So what does it mean for you and I to live out, to live as Christ. What does that mean? I mean, could you say that? For to me, to live is Christ. Could you say that? Let me see if I can at least kind of from the text of Philippians share with you, I think, what Paul, Paul means. I think he at least would assume that there is a complex of thoughts that go into that idea of for me to live is Christ. Uh, I'm try, I try to put them in logical order because he intersperses them, kind of peppers them throughout his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 3, I think he really helps us understand this first thought, and that is <clears throat> it's a life of dependence on Jesus. It's a life of dependence on Jesus, not self-righteousness, not personal goodness. And I, I think in order to enter into relationship and saving hope with Jesus, you have to trust in him alone. Philippians 3, for we are... The true circumcision who worship God by spirit, let me correct that, I read that incorrectly, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ. Okay, we glory in Christ and we put no confidence in ourselves, in our flesh. Go down to verse 9. We want to be found in Christ. How? Having a righteousness. How did this righteousness come? Not through the law, it says, but through faith. So, so here's, here's the thought I think Paul wants us to know, that if we are ever to say with all honesty and integrity, for to me to live is Christ, we have to begin and enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ where we put our dependence upon him, not in ourself. If you think you're good enough for God to approve of, you do not have Jesus Christ. It's a little bit of an all or nothing thing. Have you ever seen a little child try to jump in a pool when he kind of trusts dad? Where he starts to jump, and then as he's jumping, he turns around and tries to grab his side? That's a terrifying moment for any dad, because that is the worst thing he could do. Jump all the way, or don't jump. There is no half jumping. That's how you smash your face on the side of a pool. Saving faith is an all or nothing thing. You just leap into Full confidence that Jesus saves you and nothing else. You are not good enough. That was kind of the point of Romans 7, wasn't it? The law is not an instrument to save you. Jesus is the Savior. That's the hope of Romans 7. So Paul has this absolute trust that his righteous standing before God is through Christ, not through his own good works. He gives his resume. Right? He says, as concerning the law, I was blameless. As concerning passion, I was passionate. Right? He persecuted the church in his passion. He had the right ethnicity, Jewish, tribe of Benjamin. I mean, even before he like, had a thought, he was circumcised. According to the law, he was good. He says, but that did no good. Because only Christ and his righteousness is what will stand before God's judgment. Okay, a life of dependence on Jesus rather than self-reliance. A life pleasing Jesus. That's his aim. That's his goal in life. That's his mission. As you ask the question, who should I marry? What job should I take? How should I respond to this guy at work? How should I treat my employee? 
When you ask those questions, the, the, the certain and large answer for this is what pleases Jesus is what you should do. What pleases Jesus Christ? Philippians 1.20. It's my eager expectation and hope that now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether it's by life or by death. You know, the worst thing for a Christian is not death. It'd be to dishonor Christ. And Paul is so convinced that what keeps him awake at night is not fear of dying. It's fear of not honoring Jesus. And if that's what gives you anxiety, you're on the right track. We're anxious about how much money we have in the bank. We're anxious about our children. We're worried about you know, you know, how we're going to accomplish some task. We're worried about our coworkers. We're worried about our health. Paul's in prison. He's, he's saying the thing that gives me concern is that in the future, under pressure, I might not honor Christ. Why? Because whether by life or by death, he wants Christ to be honored. Philippians 1.18. As he's suffering the, the, the indignities of people preaching in such a way that they add to his affliction, he says, at the end of this, though, I am pleased because Christ is being preached. I want to please Christ, so they're preaching Christ? This is good. But Paul, it's hurting you personally. Yeah, but Christ is being preached, so that's a, I'm rejoicing in that. Philippians 1.27. He calls upon the Philippians to join him in this thought. Let your, wife, let your wife, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians 2.13. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to labor for his good pleasure. Philippians 1.29. He says, it's been granted to the Philippians to suffer and to believe for his sake. That's for the for the pleasure of Christ. But when Paul considers what it means for him to live is Christ, he is suggesting to us nothing less than absolute dependence on Jesus for righteousness. He's suggesting to us a deep-rooted, universal commitment to please Christ in everything, whether by life or by death. He's also challenged the Philippians to join him in patterning their life after Jesus. That they would embrace a thinking and a mindset and an attitude and an action that looks like Jesus. So, so like Galatians, he says something like this. Right? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but, but Christ. That, that is, his life is a manifestation to the world of Christ's heart and actions and attitude towards the world, towards sinners, towards his church. Does that make sense? That, that, that I need to embrace thinking that is like Jesus as I engage life. He would say this, look in chapter 2, verse 5, probably the most significant verse on this thought. As he speaks to the Philippians, he says, have this mind among yourselves, as in all y'all. What mindset are they to have? The mindset that is theirs in Christ, that is, the mindset of Christ himself. But that's, that, that's not all that Paul says about this. If you come down to uh, chapter 3, he speaks of that, that passion to be conformed to Christ. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share or have fellowship with him in his sufferings. Paul looks at his suffering for the cause for the gospel, for the advance and the growth and the progress of the church as joining in the very suffering of Christ. I think in Colossians he says he's making the sufferings of Christ complete. So you continue thinking through these thoughts where Paul is calling upon them to think like Christ. And then he says this, he says in, in chapter 3 verse 21, he will transform our lowly bodies and our lowly humble bodies will be like his glorious body. Now think about that train of thought. In this life, right now, God wants you to think like Jesus. And one day in the future when you die, he will make you like Jesus. And Paul finds great comfort in that. I do too. I was thinking about this this morning. I'm getting old. 
I've been told this numerous times lately. I don't know what has changed about me, but if, for whatever reason, people have felt the need to remind me I'm getting old. Thank you for that, Don. <laughs> it's true. I mean, like, there's no rewinding this thing. It's falling apart. It's like there's more, like, there's more wear in the tires, there's less tread, and there's no retread shop for this thing. What's your hope? Well, hope is, is this thing's getting a makeover, and it needs it. But it's not just, I mean, the, the significant thing is not that I'll get rid of wrinkles. It's to get rid of sin. That'll get rid of the ugliness within me. The selfish desire to please myself will be fully transplanted with the desire to please God by serving others and glorifying him for his sake. Wouldn't that be fantastic? I mean, don't you hate that in you? That even when you mean to do good, you do good for your sake. Like, yeah, I will serve because I love you. And then you serve and you're like, everybody look at me. Like, ah! Oh. Like, even when we serve, the taint flies in there that, that we serve ourselves sometimes in serving Christ or others. It is so hard to have clean hearts and pure motives. And here's how you do it. We live for Christ. Even think of how Paul begins his letter. 1.6 and 1.10, he says this. He is trying to do, like he's praying for and working for the Philippians with the confidence that God will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Then you come down to verse 10. He calls upon God to work in the Philippians' lives so that they have discernment and approve what is good and excellent so that they might be blameless in the day of Christ. So as he calls upon them to think like Christ, he's preparing them and equipping them for the ultimate day of testing. If you think like Christ today, you're ready for him to judge you tomorrow. If you live like Christ today, you're ready for him to judge you tomorrow. How do you know you're going to pass with flying colors? Because you live like he would live. You think like he would think. You suffer as he calls you to suffer. You rejoice in the things that bring Christ joy. And just as an application, I'm amazed by how our church, excuse me, our culture looks at church. So, so I'm just going to lead into this a little bit longer than maybe you need me to, but just for your sakes, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. What is the church? Okay, I know you all know the answer, so I'm just going to tell you. The people. Right, so, so I, I realize linguistically we say things like, I'm going to go to the church. And usually when we speak like that, we mean like the address, the location. We all know that that's not biblically the way God defines the church. The church is his precious people. How does Jesus Christ view his church people? Ephesians 5 says he calls them his bride. Okay, so think about, think about if we're going to invest ourselves with the heart and the attitude of Christ. He looks around this room and with a heart filled with affection and loyalty, says this is my glorious bride. Now, if you're, you're like me and you're maybe a little judgy, you look around the room and you're like, huh, this is glory. This is his bride. He could have done better. <laughs> right? You look at the mirror and you're like, God loves, like Christ loves me. It is, and, and, and we have that thought, and then you read Ephesians 5. Christ loves his bride, and he has died that he might sanctify her, purify her, and make her glorious. It's not that we already are glorious. It's that Christ died for a wrinkly, blemished, dumpy bride. And now, through his sacrificial, deep, loyal affection for his bride, he is making her into this glorious beauty, fit for heaven. And Paul says, that should be our heart. Okay, so we don't join a church that's glorious. We join the dumpy, wrinkly, grumpy bride. That's who we join. And then we serve her to help her become the glorious beauty that would honor Christ. And we're the dumpy, ugly, wrinkly. Like, that's me. And your ministry to me helps me to be received and welcomed in the presence of Christ. 
when we look at how we sacrifice for, love for, and work for the people that are the bride of Christ, do we have his heart? Because wrinkly and dumpy are visual metaphors. What we mean is they sin. And sometimes their sin gun is pointing at us. We don't like that. And that causes us to have a disaffection for the very people who need our help. Paul's concerned that the Philippians don't know that. And so he says in chapter 4, tell, probably going to butcher their names here, Yudia and Syntyche, to agree with one another because their pride and their disagreement is ugly to Jesus. Paul didn't say which one was right. He said, get over it. And I will tell you, that is super hard for my soul that knows I'm always right and knows that you need to agree with me. Can you imagine being Yudia or Syntyche? The apostle writes in a letter to the whole church, stop it, you, stop it. Just, just for context, let me imagine that with you all, that, that during a sermon, I see you talk to the person next to you. I'm like, hey, hey, you, name you. Stop it. <laughs> like, your face would be red. You'd be a little angry at me. You'd be hyper embarrassed. He writes it in the Bible. Their name. And he says, stop it. He doesn't say, hey, you didn't Sintiki. We all know Sintiki's right, so... Yudia, knock it off. Like he calls them both out, says get over it, move on. Agree with one another. And then starts talking to the rest of the church again. Whew. Why? Because if Christ died for his precious people, you can get over it, whatever it is. Do you love? Do you love like Christ loved? I mean, think about the pre-salvation love Christ had for you. You were ugly, lost in sin, and Christ shepherded you to faith, to repentance, to see his beauty and glory and come to salvation. He pursued you, and he calls you to come pursue others like he does. Our Savior is glorious, and his glory is seen in the conduits of his people. Uh, maybe just in as, as, as a mental picture, this will help you. The world and you and I, barring death, will never see Jesus. Right? We're not going to see him physically. He doesn't appear anymore. He lives in heaven. The Bible's really clear. One day in the future, he's coming again. Until then, you don't see him. Despite all the claims. And potato chips that have the image of Jesus on them or whatever else the world thinks they see. How does the world see Jesus then? How do they know who our Savior is and how glorious he is and forgiving and kind? How do they know his never-failing willingness to pursue people who are injurious and sinning against him? How do they know this? And it's through the window into which God gives them. This morning, Pastor Jeremy and I were talking outside the nursery and I look over, and there's this baby floating in front of the window. There was a nursery worker behind the baby, but I couldn't really see the nursery worker. I just see this little baby floating there. And through that window, I can see a child that I'm not in the presence of. But I can see this baby. You are that window into which the world that cannot hold or see Christ can see him. Right? right? Like, like. The world will never see the forgiveness of Christ unless you bring to them the words of Scripture and embody to them the character of the Christ of Scripture. And so your neighbors, who will never pick up the Bible on their own, can see Christ when you embody his spirit and his attitudes and his mindset. And in that window, they see what they could not possibly see without you. Which leads to all sorts of applications I will entrust to you with how you are living and how you're speaking to your unsaved coworkers and family and neighbors. 
how you embody as parents to your children the sweetness of Christ, how you challenge them to pursue him. So let me end after giving you this high calling that has probably defeated y'all. Because isn't that a high calling? Do you feel the burden? For to me to live is Christ. Who then is sufficient for this? Who can do this? A life powered by Jesus Christ is part of what it means to embody him. Throughout this letter to the Philippians, he's giving them this hope, right? He's challenging them to, to do the undoable in a human perspective. And then he reminds them, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 11, that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the righteousness that, that we stand before God in terms of a judicial judgment. He's talking about a practical outworking. We do righteousness through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 19. I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Again, I think it's really interesting. He's talking about embodying Christ. But there he speaks of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit of Christ. Right? The Spirit of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7. The peace of God that passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds through whom? Through, right? It's through Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus. You could look at chapter 2, verse 13 again. For God is at work in you, both to will and to do what pleases him. How can you possibly live like Jesus? It's a miracle, right? It, it is the supernatural work of God to strengthen you to do what you cannot do without him. That's supernatural stuff. Right? Like, it's not a voice from heaven. It is, it is the gracious, empowering work of God. And both, I think, scripturally as well as experientially, let me suggest to you that happens as you work, as you do. Like, like, God does not charge our battery and then say, go, go after it, boys. It's that, like, he's got a ride-along charger. Our tank never fills, but he keeps it going with supplying grace as we labor, as we go. I, I think the point is made true of, like, generous giving. That God gives us seed to sow as we sow. You know, so we have this bag. We've got, like, three seeds in it. Jesus says, be faithful, plant them. But I look at three. Trust me. And we start, we start working, and our bag stays full. Right? That, that's, that's, he gives that point in the, in the um, Scripture passages on giving, that God supplies seed to the sower so that we can plant for him. We can sow. By the way, that is not the same thing as a prosperity message. That's like, hey, sow your 10% and God will make you rich. The point is, as you parent, as you serve within the church, as you labor, you look at like your ability, your time, your energy, your skills, and you look at what you have and you're going to say, I can't do it. And Jesus says, I know. I made you. And I called you to this task you cannot do without me. So trust me. I will empower you. I will grace you. I will strengthen you. Have you ever felt like you can't do what you're called to do? I don't think Jesus is disappointed in that observation or revelation that you have that you can't do it all. You're to the place where you now know you need faith. Trust Jesus to empower you. God calls us to impossible tasks all the time. He calls us to forgive people we don't feel like we could possibly forgive. He calls us to share the gospel with people we don't think we'll possibly ever believe. He tells us to preach to people who seem to have spiritually deaf ears. He calls us to love the ugly, the outcast, the unliked. He calls us to serve people who seem like they don't need our service at all. He calls people to speak. Just think about the foolishness of preaching that God has ordained. I'm talking to a bunch of tired, hungry, warm people. What hope do I have that this thing works? It is only by the grace of God he changes any of us. It is by God supporting, convicting, working grace that preaching works. How did God save anyone? 
by his grace. Paul, living out Christ, fully dependent on Jesus for his righteousness and standing before God, pursuing the pleasure of Christ in all things. He is doing this in such a way that the pattern of how, what to do, is Jesus' pattern. And he's doing so in the confidence that God will give that supporting grace as he does it. That's what it means to live as Christ. For to me to live is Christ. It is to live in the power of Christ, embodying his desires, because we're pursuing his pleasure as we walk in complete dependence upon him. That's what it means to live as Christ. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If that's how you live, your joy will never stop. Your satisfaction with life will never end. Because your satisfaction is anchored to this thought. For to me to live is Christ. If Paul can do that in a Roman prison, that the Philippians under persecution and poverty can experience Christ's joy, if they can be promised a peace that passes understanding, then we know that peace and joy and contentment are gifts granted to those who embody Christ to the people around them by living in his grace and his power by his pattern. So let's be that type of people, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it shapes our minds to think like Christ. Father, we pray and trust that not only will you help us to see the pattern of Christ's beauty in this world as we try to embody the, the, the revelation of Christ in the scriptures, that you also empower us to live like Christ, to forgive like Christ, to be patient as he is patient, to serve others as he himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. Father, we ask that you would help our church family to have the very power of the Spirit of Christ, that they might be righteous. We also ask for those who might be walking into this passage of Scripture having full confidence that they're good on their own, they don't need Jesus, to be humbled. None of us is righteous enough to please you. It is only by a righteousness given to us when we believe that we can please you. So, Lord, I pray that as with the apostle, our hope is to be found having a righteousness that is from Christ by faith. And being found like that, we will be approved. Lord, I ask that that would be the hope and the confidence of every person in this room so that all would know that the hope of heaven is theirs forever because they are righteous by the gift and the grace of Christ alone. This we pray for, that Jesus might be honored in us and through us, that as with this passage, the people we serve would have confidence that is in Christ, strengthened by the Spirit. Please, Father, do these works, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.